Jesus told. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things? But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross from over here to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, then they will repent. Abraham said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. So for the past few weeks, we have been talking about creation and our role within creation to be caretakers and stewards. This morning, I want to unpack this parable as we continue to explore our role within creation. But you might be thinking, wait a minute, Pastor Matt. This is a parable about heaven, hell, and who goes where and why. This is about life after death. This is about the afterlife, which is, this is a, what can a parable about heaven and hell, two things that are decidedly not here, have to do with our role in creation, which is decidedly here, which is admittedly a good question. You see, we are accustomed to reading parables as if they were fables. Fables are stories that we uh, fables are stories that we know are stories that have a lesson to teach us. They have a moral at the end, and your job is to figure out what the moral is and then live accordingly. Parables are different. Parables are stories that are meant to illuminate. There are lessons embedded within the parables, sure, but there isn't just one way of reading, one way of interpreting, one way of learning from the story. Instead, parables are meant to change us and change with us, and multiple readings can glean myriad lessons. There's an ancient term for what we can do with parables. It's called turning the gem. It's as if the parables are crystals, and if you hold a crystal up to a light and then turn it, the way that the light comes off the crystal will be forever changing. So let's turn the gem a little with this story. There's a rich man who has more than anyone would ever need. And every day he would walk out of his house and he'd see someone on the street, a man named Lazarus. Lazarus had a number of needs, most of which you could easily discern by looking at him. If you were to look upon Lazarus, you'd see that he was hungry, that he needed medical attention, that he needed clean clothes, and he needed somewhere to live. All things the rich man could have provided for Lazarus. All things the law declared that the rich man 
should do for Lazarus. Here's the problem. The rich man never noticed Lazarus, or at least never noticed him long enough to care about trying to help him. So they both die, and Lazarus goes to heaven, and the rich man goes to hell. The rich man cries out for help, for Lazarus to come and help him. But Abraham tells him it's impossible. Just as an infinite chasm existed between Lazarus' needs and the rich man's concern, there's an infinite chasm between the rich man and Lazarus now. Here's where it gets interesting. In some respects, the rich man has a conversion experience. He suddenly thinks of someone other than himself and worries about his family members who are still alive and equally unconcerned about the needs of the poor. Send Lazarus to them, he pleads to Abraham, so they don't wind up here with me. Abraham says they have the law and they have the prophets. They have everything they need to make the right choice. And in a mic drop story under charged with theological meaning, Abraham says if they're not going to listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen to anyone, not even someone who comes back from the dead. The Bible invented the subtweet. More than being a story about heaven and hell and who goes where, I think this story is about the voices we choose to listen to and the voices we choose to ignore. And in that respect, I think it has incredible resonance with our discussion of creation. Let's reframe the story a bit. Our main character is a person whose affluence has left him unconcerned with the wider needs of the people outside of his circle. But he's also an Israelite, a son of Abraham. So he has all the resources necessary to have learned that he ought to be concerned with the poor and the oppressed. There are large parts of the law, large parts of Torah, detailing and outlining how Israel and Israelites would care for the widow, the orphan, the alien, the vulnerable within society. Torah, Israelite law, made it clear that there was a relationship between personal piety and social concern. One could not be righteous if the poor were not being cared for. So the rich man had every reason to be concerned about the poor person living outside his gate. And yet he wasn't. He didn't care. He went about his business as if the welfare of Lazarus didn't impact the rich man whatsoever. So with our rich man, it wasn't a lack of knowledge. It wasn't an access to moral arguments or information that was the issue. His failure was a failure to respond to what he had been given. Which is why he gets the response he does when he tells Abraham to send Lazarus back to his family. Essentially he's saying, I didn't realize that part of the law was important. I didn't realize it mattered. I didn't realize it was true. Abraham rebuffs that logic. Look, you and your family had everything you need to make responsible choices. Abraham tells the rich man, your family doesn't need anything more. The moral and legal resources they have are more than enough. It's available to them. The question isn't more what can God do. The question is, will they make good use of what God has already made available? And when I think about our role as stewards, as caretakers of creation, I think the question is similar for us. We're going to talk a little bit today about science and creation. And I think there are a lot of us that look at the science around creation and think, if we just had something more, if we had something definitive, we'd make different choices. If you could prove to me that global warming was real and was being made worse by humanity, we'd surely be on board 
forward with some changes. If we only had proof. What I want to suggest today is we already have enough information to care a lot more than we currently do. And the problem isn't a lack of information and the solution isn't something new. The problem is a lack of attention to what we already have and the solution is behavior change. But before we move into looking at some of the science, one more word of pretext. So often science and facts are used to shame. Science says this, and if you don't agree, then you are necessarily a bad person. And in some respects, equating science to the law in this parable fits that bill. If you don't follow the law, you are a bad person. The rich man didn't follow the law. He was sent to hell. Bad people go to hell, ergo, the rich man is a bad person. But that's not at all what the law was meant to do. The law was meant to coax us into different choices, into better behavior. And my hope is that by talking about some of the science around creation, looking at some of the facts, rather than be shamed, we might exercise our freedom in Christ more responsibly. We might be coaxed into making different decisions. We might choose to notice things that we had never seen before. My framework heading into this sermon was the nexus of science and faith. In the United Methodist Church, we have two sacraments, the sacrament of baptism and the sacrament of Holy Communion. One involves water, one involves food. So as we approach how science might speak into our faith, especially with respect to creation, let's look at what science can tell us about water and food. Start with water. Water is a basic resource for all life. This much we know. Here's something I didn't know. One in six people on earth lacks access to safe drinking water. One in six. Which leads to major systemic issues. Because we know we cannot survive without water. So we have to get water. Somehow. And in many communities, they don't have easy access to water. It's young women who are tasked with walking to wherever the water is and bringing it back to the community. Which means these young women aren't in school. Which means they're making a many miles long journey. Which means they're vulnerable. Lack of access to fresh drinking water is the reason why three million people, most of them children, die from waterborne illness. But here's the real kicker. We have enough fresh water on earth to sustain all life on earth. It's not a resource problem. It's a distribution problem. And yes, I know you take the occasional long shower from time to time, and I get it. It's the only place your kids won't bother you. So I'm not asking you to give that up. And it's not even because we run the dishwasher when it's half full. I leave the water running while I wash the dishes, which is something I didn't know was wrong until I got married. I didn't know there was a wrong way to wash the dishes until I got married. I just assumed that they got washed. Isn't that the way? There's some water that we can save through being more responsible, yes. And we should. But only 10% of our water use in the U.S. is for domestic and daily life purposes. 20% is for industrial purposes. The other 70%? Agriculture. It takes 33,100 gallons of water to produce 2.2 pounds of grass-fed beef. I didn't realize when I put this stat in that it was going to be the, for the Sunday after Valentine's Day. I mentioned last week about the way 
ways that going vegetarian for one day a week could lower your carbon footprint, it also could drastically reduce the amount of water we consume in the United States. So I'm not immune. This one hurts me. One round of golf requires 3,000 gallons of water in course maintenance. And given how I play golf, it's probably more like 5,000. But think about this. Think about this. Many people around the world have to get by on less than a gallon of water per day. And when I play a four-hour round of golf, my playing requires 3,000 gallons of water to make the greens that I can't hit a ball onto green. And the news isn't getting better. As populations continue to grow and as poverty increases, the UN estimates that between two and seven billion people will face water shortages by 2050. I have some good news. The United Methodist Church is trying to fix some of these issues. If it's not an act, if it's not a resource problem, it's a distribution problem, the United Methodist Church is trying to fix the distribution problem. Encore, the United Methodist Committee on Relief has an advanced special called Water for Life that is working to put wells in Liberia. Uh, and if you want to be a part of the work that they are doing, here's the brilliant thing about Umcor. Every dollar that you give to Umcor, 100% of that dollar, 100 pennies of that dollar, go directly to the project that's being served. All the overhead is paid for by the United Methodist Church. We take care of the overhead so that your money can go directly into to mission and ministry. It's called Water for Life if you want to look it up. Now let's talk about food. I read a quote in which I'm paraphrasing. Someone talked about the two dangers of modern life. The first is believing that food comes from the grocery store, and the second is that heat comes from the furnace. Sounds like something my father would have said to me growing up. I'm struck by the disconnect that I have with how and where and what goes into getting food to my plate. A pastor in Minnesota did a study about how many miles the items in her salad traveled to reach her plate. The average item in a salad traveled over 2,000 miles to get to her. The disconnect means that I don't know and therefore I don't care about how the food gets from point A to point my mouth. We don't care that chickens who are born only to die are kept in cages in which they can't move and are de-beaked because the natural reaction chickens have when they are cramped together and other chickens are invading their personal bubble is to peck at other chickens. Just like apparently someone's natural reaction to having a airplane seat reclined back into them was to push on the seats. We're not that different from chickens. Um, we don't know that requiring chickens to live so many to such a small space means they are living in their own filth, which means we pump them full of more antibiotics than humans receive in order to keep them from getting diseases. We don't know that we spray our produce with more pesticides than ever, yet we lose more of our produce to pests now than we did in the 1940s, when the majority of our produce was grown using traditional farming methods. There's a running joke about how the only thing that's truly eternal is a Twinkie. I mean, it's true, Twinkies never really go bad. But read the ingredients labels on some of our food and you'll understand why it doesn't go bad. We don't know what's going in our food in order to get it to our tables in order to keep it in our pantries long enough so that we get desperate enough to eat it. 
And even if we did know what's in there, we can't pronounce half of it. There's a story recorded in every gospel, I believe, about Jesus feeding the 5,000 with a couple loaves and a couple fish. The setting for this story is a rural agricultural community, a community that was used to growing the grain and catching the fish needed to feed itself, a community that if it came together could feed itself and ensure that no one was hungry. But the context of that story was also one of occupation by Rome, an empire that came in and took the resources from the community in the form of taxation, who took the grain and the fish to feed the citizens of Rome, at which point there wasn't enough for the local community to sustain, sustain itself, at which point people did go hungry. Science tells us there's enough food in the world to ensure that no one would go hungry. But like water, it's not a question of resources, it's a question of distribution. In 2005, it was estimated that 35 million Americans, most of them children, went hungry because of poverty, and one in three people around the world suffered from vitamin A, iron, and iodine deficiencies. It would cost $24 billion to ensure everyone had the food and vitamins they needed, which yes, $24 billion is an insane amount of money. In 2005, Americans spent $42 billion to lose weight. We throw away $43 billion in food each year. I'm going to say those numbers again. It would cost $24 billion to ensure that everyone around the world had the food and vitamins they needed. And yet we spent $42 billion to lose weight. And we threw away $43 billion in food. I'm very proud that we live in a community that recognizes some of this is solvable. And if you weren't here last week, let me say it again. Axe has an app called Food Rescue, where you can sign up to take food from restaurants and supermarkets that would otherwise be thrown away, but is still perfectly acceptable for human consumption, and deliver it to churches and nonprofits in our area so that hungry people can be fed. We can be a part of a miracle here in Prince William County. What are some other ways that we can make different choices? I think there are some ways we can decide to make some different choices in response to what we know. Again, this is not to shame us. You aren't a bad person if you don't do these things, and you're not a good person if you do them. But science can help us notice things we haven't noticed before. We can see the person begging at our gate, and in seeing that person, make a new and a different choice. One of them is to try and buy more whole foods rather than processed foods. Put another way, shop on the edges of the grocery store and not the middle. There are some issues with the way we get some of our meat and our produce, but there are far greater ones with food that is processed and chemically altered. Another is to shop at farmer's markets when possible. And I know this is the worst time of the year to be talking about shopping at a farmer's market. But put this in your memory. Sociologists have done studies about people's habits uh, when shopping at grocery stores versus farmer's markets. When people go into a grocery store, according to the study, they go, get what they need, and they leave without talking to anybody. When people shop at a farmer's market, they have, on average, 10 conversations. And so one could say that just friendly people go to farmer's markets. But I think there's something about the relationship that, that farmer's markets create with our food and with each other that just make us friendly than going to the supermarket. For a couple years, Emily and I did a crop share. And every week, 
markets and doing farm shares help decrease the knowledge gap between us and our food, and they support more sustainable farming practices. A basic mantra for us could be pay more and eat less. I'm bad at this. I want the 99 cent a pound chicken breast. Guilty. But the cost gets passed on somewhere, and more often than not, the cost, uh, we pass that cost on to creation. Can we pay a little bit more for food that's raised in more humane and sustainable ways? Lazarus sat at the rich man's gate every day, and every day the rich man passed him by. I have to believe that had that rich man ever seen Lazarus, ever truly noticed him, he might have chosen to help. He might have chosen to act differently. What will we do when we are confronted with information about our life and our world? Might we choose to see and notice? And in that seeing and in that noticing, perhaps make a different choice. Let us pray.